If you have your Bibles, if you could turn to Psalm 139. If you were here with us last week, we began Psalm 139, and we looked at verses 1 to 12 last week, and today we'll look at verses 13 to 24, but we will read the whole psalm this morning. Psalm 139, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast the sum of them! If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do not I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our eyes that we could see wonderful things in your law. Father, we need to do a self-examination of even our own hearts this morning as David did as he cried out to you. May we leave here today drawn closer to you, knowing more of you, and what it is we are to do for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at paragraphs 1 and 2, verses 1 to 12 of this psalm, and we said that God knows us intimately. He knows everything about us. How does he know that? Well, the first paragraph, the third paragraph that we're going to look at today tells us, because God created us, he knows us. Someone said that he knows us the way a painter knows his picture, the way a sculptor knows his statue. But how can we possibly know God? We mentioned last week that Moses got to see the backside of God when he was hidden in the cleft of the rock. But we have it better than Moses, don't we? Because we can know God in two ways, through the perfect word of God and through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. We talked about the attributes of God last week. Let's just look at a few attributes of Jesus Christ. How about love? In Mark 21, a man rejected Jesus, the rich ruler, and yet Jesus, looking at him, loved him. What about compassion? In Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. What about omnipotence? In Matthew 8, 26, Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, O little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. What about omniscience? In Luke 6, verses 7 and 8, the scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with a withered hand, 
Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. What about the omnipresence? Matthew 28, 20, the last verse in the book of Matthew. Jesus says, behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. What about holiness? Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize us with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. What about eternality? Jesus said in John 8.58, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And what about mercy? In Luke 23.43, Jesus looked at the thief on the cross and he said, Today I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's just eight attributes of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we see. So last week, we looked at verses 1 to 12 in what Rabbi Ibn Ezra called the coronation psalm, the greatest psalm of the Psalters. We looked at point one, God knows everything about me, and we said that God knows what I do, God knows everything I think, God knows everywhere I go, God knows everything I say, God uses this knowledge to protect us, God is incomprehensible. In paragraph 2.2, God sees everything around me. He sees me, and he guides me. Today, we'll look at the next two paragraphs, and we have two, three points we'll look at. God does everything for me. God judges everything around me. And then the last paragraph, point five, we'll look at a self-examination for any wickedness in our heart. So paragraph number three, God does everything for me. It speaks of his omnipotence, his power, the power that created us. The main idea in verses 13 to 18 is that David is astounded that God precisely created him and ordained the number of his days. The theological term, as I mentioned, is the omnipotence of God. God is all-powerful. He can do all things. Verses 13 to 18 specifically focus on creation of the human body, the power that God does to create that. God can search out a man not only because he sees him and knows everywhere he goes, but because he intricately made him. Not only did he skillfully made him, and not only did he skillfully made him, he made him in God's own image. So we have five subpoints there. Number one, God made me in the tomb. The first verse in 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. We mentioned last week, this is a very personal psalm. 30 times David will say, my, I, me. You see that in this verse here. 20 times David will point to God and say, you, your. So 50 times we have these personal pronouns. Most translations here say that God knitted us. The NASB says, you wove me in my mother's womb. It's a description of a knitter making a tapestry. Ping and I lived in Myanmar and we lived in India and they would have these wombs that these people would make, these shawls, these claws, and they would sit there for almost two weeks, 10 to 12 hours a day just to make one shawl, but the colors were beautiful. The tapestry was beautiful. That's the description here of how God creates us beautifully. Isaiah 44.2 says, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Man's body is the most complex and intricately designed system in the universe, one author said. The whole theory of evolution is nothing more than man attempting to escape from God. So if God made me, then God has plans for me. If God has plans for me, Satan wants to derail those plans. And number three, store up treasure in heaven, not on earth. God has plans for us that we need to be busy about his kingdom. Now these verses teach individually about a child while it's in the womb of his mother. David is not talking about abortion here. 
Okay, the texts aren't about abortion, but you can't read this text and think about the current abortion debate. Because, you know, when you go to Genesis 1, God just made Adam out of what? Dirt. He made Eve out of a rib. But these are the most beautiful verses in the Bible that describe what goes on in the womb of a mother. And, you know, we used to talk about a mother carrying the baby in the womb, but our modern culture, the feminist culture, the, the wickedness of our world calls it a cluster of cells. They treat the womb and a baby like a gallbladder. You don't need a gallbladder, take it out. You don't need the baby, take it out. That's what our society has become. Until recently, there was never any doubt in the mind of a Christian church that killing is wrong. So I thought I'd just give you some examples. And I think Dr. James Dobson, I think, came up with these. But first example, we won't turn there, but remember Genesis 25, verses 21 to 26? It describes Rebecca's womb as there are children in Rebecca's womb. Isaac, uh, I'm sorry, Esau and Jacob, not Isaac. He, uh, he's the father. And it says the twins in Rebekah's womb are described as children. They're described as two nations, two people. So God had already in his omniscience, in his purpose, had planned out two great nations in the womb of that woman. He knew what they were going to do. He knew the lifespan of those two boys from womb to the tomb. And he told the mother what he was going to do when she was troubled by it. A second example would be Samson. Samson's mom is pregnant with Samson. And the angel of the Lord tells Samson's mother, you're going to conceive and have a son. And she's further instructed, now see to it that you drink no wine or fermented drink and that you eat, do not eat anything unclean. Why would the angel of the Lord tell Samson's mother before the baby's born? Because that child to be Samson was going to be a Nazarite. And therefore, the, such drink and food were not to enter his body, including the placentia of Samson's mom. The third example is a famous verse in Jeremiah 1.5. God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you, in the womb I knew you. In the foreknowledge of God, like us, like Jeremiah, from eternity, God has an identity of purpose for that baby in that womb. So what he's saying is we have a prehistory even before we're born. It's evident, therefore, that God oversees the entire prenatal and postnatal life. The fourth example, turn with me to Luke 1. Turn with me to Luke 1. I love this one. Luke chapter 1. We have the story of Mary. The angel has just visited her. And in Luke 1, 39, it says, In those days Mary rose and went in haste to the hill country, to the town in Judea, as she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So you get the picture here. You have the, the newly pregnant Mary, maybe a week, two weeks, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant six months, and the pregnant women greet each other. And John the Baptist who's a spiritual being, recognizes that he's in the presence of the Christ child. So the two-week-old embryo, so the, the baby that's six months, leaps for joy. So these two babies in the womb, they're called babies, are demonstrating what it means to be fully human, spiritual beings, bearers of the image of God. In Luke 1, when it talks about the, the word baby said twice there we just read, the Greek word is brephos. So the, the, the baby in the womb, the Greek word is brephos. If you go to chapter 2 of Luke, and baby Jesus is born, in Luke 2.16 it says, 
And when they went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger, the baby outside the womb, the baby Jesus, the Greek word there is brephos. Same word, baby in the womb, baby outside the womb. It's a baby, right? So, and the, another example, what about the early Testament church? There's a very famous document called the Didaka or the Dache. They argue how to pronounce it. And in there, there's a Pissible of Barnas. And we look at that because it teaches us, Lance has quoted it before in our study in Peter about false teachers. It t- tells us a lot about how the early church taught about false teachers. But there, there's a commandment, you shall not murder a child by abortion nor kill them when they're born. So what changed? God didn't change. The Bible didn't change. The church, some churches have changed. But the sexual revolution changed, didn't it? And the sexual revolution that came in the 60s and 70s demanded abortion on demand so that it could have sex without marriage. But God made that baby in the womb. I think we know that. Let's look at point two. God made me wonderful. Here you have, I hope you'll, you'll know this verse, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, that every man, woman, and child would know this first. Every teenager would know this first. You don't need liposuction. You don't need plastic surgery. God created you fearfully and wonderfully. In verse 6, David breaks out in wonder and says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Here in verse 14, David can only praise God for his omnipotent work. David stands in awe of being made by God. The literal translation is, for I am fearfully and wonderful. Made is added. Okay, that's not in the original Greek. To be fearfully and wonderfully made includes every person from the womb to the tomb as human beings who bear the image of God. Fearfully and wonderfully made means God intimately knows every person and all humanity belongs to him. The Bible says in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So Genesis 1.27, the first chapter of the Bible, explains to us that man is made in the image of God. We bear the image of God, which makes us special and distinct from the rest of created order. You know, animals can be amazing, can't they? I saw a video of a chimpanzee that can speak 300 or understand 348 words. Amazing, isn't it? We had a couple in our church many years ago that had a parrot that could sing, Jesus loves me. Amazing, but animals aren't made in the image of God. Only that baby, only humans are. David says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. David didn't have an ultrasound. David didn't have all the sophisticated equipment that our doctors, our hospitals have today. But he knew that the work of creation, God making a baby, was wonderful. Let's look at subpoint three. Not only did God make me in the womb, not only did God make me wonderful, God made me magnificent. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Some of your translations also say knitted in the depths of the earth. Last week, when we looked at verses 1 to 6, we saw that God knows everything about me, not just from the day I was born, but from the moment of conception God knows us while we're in the womb. God saw us even when we couldn't be seen. He says, the psalmist said in Psalms 8, we looked at that psalm on our Wednesday night, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Psalms 8 says that God made us a little lower than the angels, but he made us higher than the animals. 
I lived for seven years in the country of India, and you know that they worship the cow, a created animal. They get their eyes off the creator, you get your eyes on creation, not just, not just the Hindu, over one billion of them are worshiping the animal. Many people in our modern culture worship animals. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says, You do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. It's too magnificent. It's too wonderful to even know or understand. God, the human body, is the masterpiece of God's creation. Not only did God make us in the womb, not only did God make us wonderful, not only did God make us magnificent, God made my time, verse 16. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. What's that mean? That means the embryo. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Not only did God make us in the womb, but he knows us beyond the womb. He knows our entire life from eternity. Our days are mapped out. God wrote about us when there was nothing to write about us when we were still in our mother's womb. He knows the precise number of our days. God is not caught by anything that happens in our life. You know, there's lots of uh, talk or infomercials today about how to live longer lives, how to eat this new super fruit or this new super food to live longer. But the Bible says in Psalms 90.10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80 Yet their span is but toil or trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Interesting that Moses wrote that Psalm 90, right? So he wrote that about 1450 BC. So that Psalm was written 3,500 years ago approximately, right? What's the average lifespan of a person today in America? 78.6 years. So Moses had it right 3,500 years ago. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's the one talking through Moses. Not only are we created, it says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's workmanship and God created us for good works. So God has plans for us. God has plans for that baby in that womb. God prepared beforehand that we should walk in those works, Ephesians 2.10. Last week, I said the application for the first 12 verses, I said point three of our application was those who know God will show great boldness for God. And I mentioned that quote from that that African missionary, David Livingston, who said, and I had like five or six people ask me to repeat the quote, so I'll give it to you again. David Livingston said, I am immortal until the will of God for me is accomplished. And that's how we need to live our lives. God knows our time. He knows the exact number of our days. And we need to live in light of that. Number five, God is majestic. So we had four points about God making us and about God. And now David just switches about us to about God. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I were to count them, they're more than the sand. David has thought about God's omniscience. He's thought about God's omnipresence. He's talking about God's omnipotence here. And now he breaks out to a mini doxology in verses 17 and 18. Because God doesn't merely create us and let us go. He rules over his creation. He thinks about his creation moment by moment. Knowing about God doesn't create alarm for David. It creates peace and joy and comfort because these precious thoughts comfort David, knowing God is always with him. He says that these thoughts about God would outnumber the grains of the sand of the earth if we were to count them. A.W. Tozer said, without a doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is thoughts about God. And that was an application point for last week's message too, that the people who know God will think thoughts after God. 
and I talked about meditation. The art of meditation is a lost art in the, in the Bible world today. But when we meditate upon the thoughts of God, when we read our Bible, every time we read our Bible, we need to ask ourselves, what does this teach me about God the Father? What does it teach me about God the Son? What does it teach me about the Holy Spirit? And then we need to meditate upon that because it strengthens us, it cleanses us, it helps us. David will finish by saying, I am awake, I am still with you. You know, while you sleep, you may not be consciously thinking about God, but God who never sleeps is definitely thinking about you. David loves to think the thoughts of God, and when he awakes, he realizes that God has given him another day to live to think sweet thoughts after God. The psalmist praises God for being fearfully and wonderfully made while on earth. Why? Well, one thing, that's what we're going to be doing in heaven. We're going to be praising God night and day in eternity someday. So we have looked at the perfect attributes of God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his, omni- omni- and his omni- omnipotence. But all of a sudden, you notice in verse 19, it changes. The paragraph changes. Now, there are some commentators, when you grab a book on Psalms and look here, they will say paragraph one, omniscience of God, paragraph two, omnipresence of God, paragraph three is the omnipotence of God, so they just make paragraph four the omnipurity or the omni-righteousness of God. A lot of authors do this. But the more I study this, I think they're wrong. Because David here isn't talking so much. He's talking, of course, you have four verses here about the wicked people, and then you have two verses telling us to examine the wickedness in our heart. But I really think David here, this is what we call an imprecatory prayer. David, and David does this. He does it in Psalm 23. When you look at Psalm 23, he does this in Psalm 104. David will will have a problem. David will have a praise. And then David will all of a sudden cry out about, God, deal with my enemies. Let me give you an example. We looked at Psalms 40 on Wednesday night. Now, the imprecatory prayers in Psalms, they are not long. They're just sections of Scripture. So you look at Psalms 510, Psalms 10, 15, Psalms 28, 4, Psalms 31, 17, 18, just snippets here. But when we looked at Psalms 40, verse 13 to to, uh, 15 say, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Then he has three lets. When you see the lets in Psalms, that's an imprecatory prayer. David says, Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back who brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. So we have imprecatory prayers all throughout, mostly David's prayers. But here in Psalms 139, verse 19 to 22, I believe we have an imprecatory prayer. David remembers that God has enemies. There are many people who hate God. So after describing the perfect attributes of God, he cries out in these verses about the wickedness of men. I won't spend a lot of time on precatory prayers, but in precatory prayers is when David would call down divine curses on the enemies of God, not for vengeance. We talked about, can we pray in precatory prayers against our government, our president, our vice president? We talked about that on our study on Psalm 40. But I mentioned at the end, the greatest in precatory prayer you and I can pray is for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Revelation 22.20 says, he who testifies to these things says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Well, you say that's an imprecatory prayer? Yes. Why? Well, you're praying, we're praying selfishly because we want Jesus to come to take us away, right? We want to go home to be with Jesus forever. But the flip side of that is when you pray for that prayer, what's going to happen for those who are left behind? Judgment. 
the worst judgment in the history of the world. So keep praying that prayer. Amen, Lord Jesus, come for yourself, but also it's an imprecatory prayer on the wickedness of the world. God will deal with the Taliban. God will deal with the generals in Myanmar. God will deal with all the wickedness of the world when he comes. So uh, we have here four points about David. He prays the wicked are violent. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. Men of blood here means murders. Now, I mentioned David isn't talking about abortions in verses 13 to 18, but it's interesting here he talks about wicked. And David could not see the abortion factories today and the wicked that they have. David's longing for divine vengeance upon men of blood. And David knows that he cannot, although David was a man of blood, the Bible tells us, vengeance is mine, I will repay The Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. David is asking God to slay these wicked men, God to judge them, God to deal with them, not us. David wants these wicked to depart from him. He wants separation from these wicked, ungodly, violent men. David says in verse 20 that the wicked are malicious. They uh, take God's holy name in vain. Probably the worst wickedness you could speak is against God, his holy name, and his holy word. David seeks the honor of God here. David also says the wicked are rebellious. He asks two rhetorical questions in verse 21. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do not I loathe those who rise up against you? David hates the violence of the wicked. He's fought against it his whole life. And he hates their malicious mouths of the wicked. And he hates those who hate God. As believers, we must strive to be holy. But we also must discern and hate the sin as God does. Fourthly, he says the wicked are enemies of God. He says, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. So he asked, is this a contradiction of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, to love your enemies? Well, what David's saying here is we're to love our enemies, but we're to hate God's enemies, those that would commit sin against a holy God. We must hate sin as God hates sin. David's reaction isn't against the sinners, but against those who hate God's name and who rise up against God. Why does God hate them so much? Well, he just gave you 18 verses about the perfection of God in Psalms 139. David is so taken by the greatness of God in verses 1 to 18, he wants nothing to do with sinners. Now, of course, David was born a sinner. David said in that very famous verse, Psalm 51, 5, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David was a sinner, but he found salvation in Jesus Christ, and so could we. You don't have to be an enemy of God. God asks you to admit, A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins on the cross. C, confess your sins to God. And D, dedicate your life to follow Jesus. So there's a self-examination here. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, there's a call here to come to Jesus Christ. And you can come up here and meet an elder after the service if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. But now we get into the best verses in this psalm, the last two verses. This is the last paragraph. We have a self-examination for any wickedness. I talked a little bit about this last week, that when we pray, we often pray for God to change our circumstances, but what David's praying here is to change his character, okay? So David is going to close this grand psalm with one of the greatest prayers in the Bible, and I asked you to memorize it last week. Uh, In our Tuesday night Bible study, our leader asked if anybody had memorized it, and not only did... uh, Debbie McCorkle memorized it. She had the whole psalm memorized, and she told us Wednesday night. I hope you'll memorize this. I hope you'll do your homework. I hope you'll repeat this every night, because we have a tendency to go to bed and say, Father, forgive me of my sins. Good night. That's what we do, don't we? 
We don't search our heart like David. We don't do spiritual surgery on our heart. We don't think back during the day, and did I offend somebody today? Was I kind and love with my wife today? Did I do something that would have offended God and his holiness today? So David has meditated upon God's omniscience, his omnipresence, omnipotence. And so he's going to have a self-examination. The psalmist, many verses in Psalms, I'll just give you one. Psalms 26 says, verse 2 and 3, Prove me, O Lord, try me, test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Charles Spurgeon said, As I hate the wickedness in their wicked ways, so would I hate every wicked way in myself. We are to hate the sin in our lives. We're to strive to be holy. You know, there's a lot of wickedness going on in our society. Justice seems to be failing. What was sinful and an abomination to a holy God back then now is celebrated by many people in our, our society. So most of us would say, yes, I hate the wickedness. Yes, I hate wicked people who curse the name of God, who hate God, malicious, rebellious men. Of course I hate them in their wickedness. But do you hate the wickedness in your own heart? And do you strive to get rid of it? Do you strive to be clean and holy? Are you willing to do something about it? That's what David is saying. The author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, said, Prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. So this is a prayer, two verses. And David is going to pray four things here, four things. Number one, he prays for God to search his heart. Search my heart, Lord. Do an ultrasound on my heart. Search me, O God, know my heart. Remember verse one, David said that God had searched him in the past. Here he says, God, search me in the present now. The heart is where sin begins. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witnesses, slander, any sins, known or unknown sins, you need to confess now is what David is saying. Now, David was a man of courage, right? David tells us before he went to fight Goliath, he's, he's trying to tell King Saul, I fought a bear when the, when the bear took the sheep and I killed the bear. He says, I fought a lion and took the sheep out of the lion's mouth and I killed the lion. And David went and fought Goliath. David's a brave man. But it takes a braver man and a braver woman to pray this prayer because you're asking God to do open heart surgery on your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, we quoted it last week. We often quote it. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Do you know your own heart? Maybe your wife, maybe your neighbor, maybe your children know your heart better than you know your heart. So number two, number one, he says, search his heart. Number two, he says, try and perfect my thoughts for you, O God. The ESV says, try and know my thoughts. NASB says, put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts. The NIV says, test me and know my anxious thoughts. I don't know about you, but I never liked tests in school. Okay, I would study hard. I got good grades, but tests, I would get nervous and time would run out and, and I, I'd get confused and make mistakes. But David's saying to God, go ahead, God, test me. Put me to the test. I've searched my heart from what I did today, during this day. Is there any sins? Were there any sinful thoughts? Were there any anxieties, worries? Was there misplaced trust? Are there any bad habits? You know, the Bible tells us that when you come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if you are in Christ, the old is gone. The old is to go. The new has come. The Holy Spirit teaches us new. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It takes time to sin less and less. So I thought I'd just list a few sins that sometimes I don't think we think of. What about arrogance? What about arrogance? 
What about when you're in line at KFC? I was at KFC, I think this was a couple years ago, and the cashier was obviously new to the country, and her English was not very good, but she was trying. But the person in front of me was furious because the order kept getting messed up. So that person said things and thought things about that cashier. And we do that, don't we? We think we're better than somebody else because our education, because our English, our social status. Well, that's pride. That's arrogance. When you put somebody else down to lift yourself up, okay, that's arrogance. And there are many, many verses in the New Testament about arrogance. 2 Timothy 3.2, 2 Corinthians 12.20, 1 Corinthians has verse after verse about arrogance because that was a problem, church. What about complaining? Nobody here complains, right? Uh, Ephesians 4.31, 1 Peter 4.9, James 5.9, that's sin. What about coveting? Now, I was thinking about this. I, when I was making this message, I saw the, the new Tesla pickup truck. Have you seen that? Ooh, looks nice. I can't afford it, but I can admire it, but I can't covet it, right? Coveting is sin. Mark 7.22, Ephesians 5.5, 5, Romans 13.9. What about disobedience to parents, teenagers, kids? Romans 1.30, 2 Timothy 3.2, Titus 3.3. 3. What about enmities? Enmities means is there any ill will in your heart? Is there anybody that you have not forgiven in the past? Galatians 5.20 says that's one of the sins, sins of the heart. What about slander? You know, there, there's six or seven verses in the New Testament about slander. That's when you talk about somebody, maybe putting them down to exalt yourself, talking about the Matthew 15, 19, Mark 7, 22, Ephesians 4, 31, Colossians 3, 8, verse after verse. What about ungratefulness? You're not a thankful person. You know, we, we've been talking about a lot of that in our series on Psalms. God wants you to be thankful, even for, to be content, even in your circumstances. 2 Timothy 3.2, Romans 1.21, Luke 6.35, there's a lot of ungratefulness out there. What about slothfulness? <laughs> Laziness, uh, Proverbs 19.15, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. I'll just do one more. What about stealing? So, well, I don't steal. <laughs> it's one of the commandments, right? I used to work in the retail world, and at 8 a.m., the phones open up, right? And instantly, there would be 40, 50 to 100 phone calls backed up. And as usual, half the workforce would have punched in because they want to get paid at 8, right? But they would not be on the phone at 8, <laughs> So you'd have the boss have to tell everybody, get on the phone, get on the phone, because these people are holding. Today, I mean, customer service is horrible now. I don't care who I call, you know, insurance or whatever. I'm on hold for 45 minutes. But we used to have a rule. Three minutes was the most. And boy, would we we'd put that. But, but that's called stealing time from your employer. You're getting paid, but you're not doing what the employer asks you to do. And there are a lot of employees, including Christians, that they're not, they say, well, I don't steal, but they're stealing time from their employers. So just a few of those sins ask you to search your heart. The word of, we mentioned last week, the word of God and prayer helps us identify our sins, helps us examine our hearts. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word of God and prayer renews our mind. It tests us. Are we acceptable in God? Number three, purge away whatever evil remains in him. That's what David's asking. The ESV says, is there any grievous way in me? NIV says, is there any offensive way in me? New King James says, is there any wicked way in me? And the NASB says, is there any hurtful way in me? Did I do anything today? Did I do anything tonight to hurt my family, to hurt my wife? Were my words cruel? You know, to truly love God is to hate sin. It's to do open heart surgery to examine your thoughts and motives. Dr. James Boyce says, it's a, this is a serious prayer to pray. Because it invites painful exposures and surgery if we truly mean it. 
still is what every believer should do. Psalm 66, 18 tells us that if we have sin in our heart, the Lord's not going to hear your prayer. 1 Peter 3, 7 says that husbands that have not treated their wives as a gentle partner, God will not hear their prayer. There's a lot of husbands out there that think that God's hearing their prayers and he's not if they're not treating their wife the way they're supposed to. 1 John 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, but walk in darkness, we're a liar. Number four, and lastly, David says, lead me in the way everlasting. This is the only place in the Bible where this phrase, in the way everlasting, is found. Okay, there's only two ways in life. There's the way of wickedness and there's the way of everlasting. The final words here could be translated, many ancient texts, the Catholic Bible would say, the ancient path. Jeremiah 6.16 says, stand by the roads and look, ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But the people of Israel in Jeremiah's days said, we will not walk in it. And not much has changed, has it? They have Bibles today, you have the internet, you have churches, and on the corner, but most of our world in America, most of our world says, we will not walk in this way. But David says, lead me in the way everlasting, the ancient path. I'll quote, close with a quote from uh, Arthur Gablin, who says about this. Happy is the Christian who prays these two verses every day, who puts himself in the presence of the all-seeing God, who stands in his light and is willing to have anything and everything which is not right brought to the light and judged. This is the true walk, walking in the light. Even the thoughts must be dealt with. In the New Testament, it is expressed in that verse in 2 Corinthians 10.5, bringing into captivity every thought in obedience to Christ. There's a willingness to put away anything which is previous to God, sinful to God, and to let the Holy Spirit lead you into the way everlasting. The last verses of our psalm today teach us about the mighty omnipotence of God, the power of God, and how he created us beautiful, how he had plans for us. He said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. David asks us here, and the Holy Spirit asks us, to examine your heart. I would pray that prayer every night. I would memorize it. Because if you do that, God's going to use you in a mighty way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just ask as we leave here today, that we would hate sin like David hated sin. We know, Father, that sometime down the future, David forgot these very words, and he refused to pray this very prayer after the sin with Bathsheba. And he struggled for nine months to a year, and your hand was heavy upon him. Father, we don't want to do that for one day. We ask you to search us, O Lord, know our hearts, test us, try our thoughts. Father, is there any sin, little sins, unknown sins, big sins, that we need to confess and get right to you. Father, we pray that you would we would confess it. You would cleanse us as we know you said you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then use us in a mighty way as we lead the road to everlasting. We pray for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ today as we see what's going on in Afghanistan, in Myanmar, in Haiti, and around the world, and even in our own country, Father. Help us not to be anxious, but help us to remember that we're fearfully made, wonderfully made, that you've given us time on earth to do great works for your kingdom and glory. May we leave here today knowing that and doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.